This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Peter Weinstock. Dr. Weinstock is the Endowed Chair of Simulation and the Executive Director of the Boston Children's Hospital Simulation Program, known as SimPEDS. He's also Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. Peter, welcome. Thanks. I wonder if I could begin with this question. Um, uh, you and I have worked together for many years, and when I first met you, what struck me was that you have an MD-PhD. Your PhD was from Rockefeller University, and you studied lipoprotein lipase, and you were a bench researcher. And you came through your training at Boston Children's, and I thought for sure you, know, you were going to do bench research. And then something in simulation captured you, and from that moment, you've gone on to create this incredible program. What was it that captured you about simulation? It's a great question, Jeff. Um, first of all, I'm so glad to be here, particularly here in our Sim Center. Um, but that really is a, it gets us to the beginnings for me, and it was a surprise in some ways. Um, I've always been interested fundamentally in, um, in design and in um, sort of development, programmatic development. Um, even from my earliest years, I was doing work in um, interested in computer science and building computers that were able to do things and be programmed in ways to be able to achieve certain goals. Um, my PhD work was really about knockout mice and trans transgenic mice, the ability to genetically engineer and create uh, new organisms that will allow you to study diseases in new ways. And I was ready to start a lab here, as you know. Um, and then, um, then you did something, actually. You brought a simulator into the hospital. And I was a trainee at the time and uh, came in and did a simulation. It was the first time I had ever been in a simulator. And um, we were taking care of a critically ill child, um, and the scenario was progressing, and this was a child that actually had tension physiology. And it turned out that this child ultimately did, needed to have bilateral um, needles placed in order to relieve a pneumothorax. And you could imagine the consternation that went on during that period of time among this team that was trying to assemble themselves and at the same time come up with a solution to this problem. But we did, eventually, and uh, we saved this simulator's life, um, and we debriefed. True story, about a week later, I'm in the unit, and I'm taking care of a series of patients, and lo and behold, we kind of know how this story ended, um, but there was a child who presented in a very similar way. I came to the bedside, I looked at the vital signs, I looked at the patient's condition, and I said to the team, this is a pneumothorax, and we need to needle decompress it urgently, and we did. And we did what we did probably in the simulator in about 40 minutes. We did in about 14 minutes uh, there in, in the patient's room. And I had a real aha moment at that moment. I said that the simulation experience that I had prior changed the way that I took care of this child. And what it fundamentally did is it gave me a preview, a crystal ball that we always talk about in critical care, um, into what could happen and I was therefore more prepared and the fundamental way that we cared for that patient and the timing in which we were able to deliver care to that patient was totally different. And I said to myself at that moment, as I was building a lab in, in molecular biology, 
I said to myself, I think that simulation may form a game changer in medicine, that we may really be doing medicine differently in the future if we fully adopt simulation into way, the way that we take care of patients. And I got very interested in this idea of forming simulation programs as a potential game changer in medicine. And it brought me back actually to when I was training, when I was going into my training in surgery, I remember when I was, when I was uh, interviewing, went to Johns Hopkins and the, the professor who was taking us around talked to us about game changers in medicine. And he really identified that there were very few. And I'm talking about technologies and methodologies that have completely changed the way we think about how we care for patients, the way I was thinking about simulation in some ways. The ones that immediately come to mind, for example, are antibiotics. And the discovery of antibiotics by Fleming totally changed the way we care for patients, the kind of patients we can care for. I was there interviewing surgery, so of course they identified anesthesia. And as we know now, anesthesia completely changed medicine. And so anesthesia formed for me, in my mind, yes, another game changer in medicine. And each of these were kind of pivots and disruptions of the current way of thinking uh, that allowed us to do things in medicine that we couldn't otherwise. And I was hell-bent on this idea that simulation, from that small experience that I had, that simulation could very well propose yet another. And then my other inspiration really came from the sports industry. And I'm a big fan of golf, I know you are too, and, uh, and baseball. And, and when you look at people like uh, Seve Bolesteros was one that I used to follow very closely. When you watch Seve, what he does prior to going to the actual tee and hitting a ball is he steps back about five feet and he takes a practice swing. And Seve Bolesteros would not play the game any differently. And when you think about what Seve does every day, he hits a white ball into a white cup. You think about what we do every single day. And as I was thinking about myself as a young intensivist, I thought, how could we not be adopting similar strategies into healthcare? And actually, it's true that, that medicine is probably the last high-stakes industry that doesn't practice prior to game time. You look at nuclear power, you look at the airline industry and sports industry and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. They all practice many, many times, as you know, before they actually go to play in front of an audience. And, and medicine, they just, we haven't been doing that. And we have lots of catch-up to do. So this became a bit of a perfect storm for me as, it, as I started to think about my, my game change, career-wise, going from the bench uh, to, to the simulator suite. And I decided to fully adopt uh, that as my professional uh, pathway from a scholarly standpoint. Well, Peter, that's a wonderful um, and really kind of evocative uh, presentation of how a clinician gets absorbed into um, an academic focus. Uh, but uh, could I go back on Game Changer? Um, as you know, uh, that's an aspirational goal. Uh, all of us would love to think that, you know, we're going to do something that's remarkable, but you know, the introduction of anesthesia was you know, a remarkable event. Is simulation really a game changer? Or could you tell me a little more about what, what do you mean? How has simulation changed uh, what we do? I mean, it really does come back a little bit both to the experience I had in that sim suite um, and also as I've described in the, in the, in the sports arena. Um, in that sim suite, the fundamental pivot that happened was that I had a preview. I had a chance to have real life moments to rehearse in the most authentic way possible. And what that's really doing is actually not stopping there, it's actually enabling probably where the real money is, which is in real life reflection. 
the ability to stop for a moment and say, how did that go? What could I adjust? It's sort of the Erickson model of mastery. You know, how do I adjust this ever so slightly to make my performance even better? So the game-changing element is not the technology, it's not the mannequin, it's not any of that. What it is is that fundamental moment of real-life rehearsal in the moment that matters followed by real-life reflection. And let me, let me get into this just a little bit more deeply from a theoretical standpoint. I just want to touch on two different elements. One is the work of Broadwell. Broadwell came up with this idea of four levels of learning. And I think it's kind of, kind of interesting and very applicable both to our professional development, but actually I think also to our personal development. And really what it gets at is there's a time on one axis and there's proficiency on another axis. And over time we hit this sort of symptotic type of curve. We sort of travel along, we get pretty good at what we do, and then we tend to plateau. And what Broadwell has done is actually describe these and name these stages. It helps us understand this game changer element of SIM and where SIM makes this pivot happen. The first stage of our development is what he'll call unconscious incompetence. And that is not knowing what you don't know. And if you think that that's the best part of life, it's the best part of life. It's actually ignorance is bliss, right? It's, it's actually thinking you're right when you're actually wrong um, or potentially could be wrong. And we go about our lives in that way until hopefully either someone or something prompts us to think differently or brings to our attention what is fundamentally a mistake. That we thought we were doing something right and now we're not. And that's called conscious incompetence. And that can be the most difficult time in our lives. It can be a very challenging moment, particularly for experts. But reinvented and rethought, it actually could be one of the most exciting moments in our lives. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But that's the pivot point. That's what we would call in critical care the inflection, inflection point. Because what follows now, and now you're enabled, is conscious competence. It's thinking about what you do on a regular basis, thinking deeply about every step. It's the first time you rode a bike, thinking about every move. He moves on to what we would call unconscious competence. And in some ways, this is the most dangerous parts of our careers. This is doing things and not thinking about them anymore. This is multitasking. This is putting something into autopilot. This is maybe texting and driving. This is asking you what you ate two days ago for dinner and then having to take a moment to figure out what that was because you've become unconsciously competent in eating. You just don't think about it as deeply. Imagine a system in which we could, on demand, bring you back to the steep portion of your learning curve. On demand, make you consciously incompetent at where you are professionally, or make you consciously competent. I always say you're hitting a double if you make someone consciously competent. You hit a home run if you can make them consciously incompetent because they get a whole new, they get a whole new skill set they get to perfect because now they realize that they don't know it or they're not masters in it. And this is the underpinning of simulation. This lifelike rehearsal followed by real-life reflection is that moment, that opportunity to identify when we are unconsciously incompetent and give us a chance for that growth. The last thing I'll say about this is there's actually a, a whole book and a whole literature around this. Um, and it's been de developed by uh, an author named Catherine Schultz, who I highly recommend, just really a fascinating writer. Um, who writes on something called wrongology. She writes on the idea and the study of being wrong. And what's amazing about what Catherine talks about is she reframes a mistake, not as the worst part in our lives, or the worst moment in our lives, but actually, if you think about 
the four tiers of learning, it's actually one of the best parts of our lives because it's that gateway into professional development. We make lots of mistakes in order to get better at what we do. So she also goes on to say something equally interesting towards the end of the book, which is this idea of, you know, I've, I've talked about unconscious incompetence being this kind of ignorance is bliss and not knowing what you don't know. But she actually reframes even that. She says that in some ways those, that's one of the most beautiful things about being human is that we can believe we're right and actually be somewhat wrong. And in some ways that's where innovation might come from. The idea that a phone could have one button and nothing else could be where hope comes from. So the, the whole smattering of our professional development is all has, has worth. Um, but I think that that's where the game changer um, opportunity in simulation is, is to really rev up and turbo boost those moments of identifying when we are consciously incompetent and growing from there. Peter, how do we now translate um, those really interesting observations um, that you just gave us into simulation? And in particular, I'm wondering how much of simulation is dependent on the environment, you know, the reality, fidelity of the equipment, and how much of it is uh, kind of more cognitive-based and can be done anywhere, really in any environment, if, if it's done with an understanding of how to do it? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something I, I want to make sure we focus on, actually, is a lot of what I want to talk about today and is really about sim methodology and about how do you create simulation programs and simulation activities independent of the technology, the budget, um, the funding, um, even the politics, um, but allows you still to achieve these kind of game-changing goals. And a lot of that is embedded in how you do what you do as opposed to the what you use. Uh, to make those things happen. But even more deeply, more than the how and the what, um, a lot of this I'd like to build out of the why we do it. Um, because I think if you stay to the why, why are you building a simulation program? Or why are you building simulation activities? Start there. You can then build out the what's and how's and the, the logistics and the technologies that you'll need as long as you stay true to that north, which is why are we building what we're building. I'll tell you what isn't part of the why, and that is exactly what you got at, which is the technology. So it's not about the mannequins. It's not about, there's lots of discussion now about virtual reality and augmented reality, and there can often be quite a bit of um, fixation on some of that. But those are really what's and how's. Those are tools ultimately to allow you to achieve your why in simulation. So I even say augmented and virtual reality, though will be some part of our story is not the focus of our story. This discussion around 3D printing, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I hope, later. You know, we, we've done a lot of 3D printing, and that's become quite a bit of, a part of the conversation. But again, even 3D printers are not part of why we do simulation. Instead, I really want to focus in on the patient. And when we step back and we look at what we've built in simulation at Children's, really, it, it is a diverse program, but in some ways, it all comes together under one simple concept. And I want to build that together around that. So one is just thinking about this patient, this very fragile, we deal with, as, as, as you know well, these tiny, very fragile patients, often newborns, um, lots going on. Sometimes they have heart disease. Sometimes they have lung disease. All of this is, 
really nuanced medicine with very small windows of error, very small wiggle room in these patients. And you can imagine the anxiety that that brings up both in the individual and the team, no matter how expert you are. A healthy dose of anxiety is there for all of us. Um, and sometimes it drives good behaviors and sometimes it drives less than optimal behavior. And then you go to the environment in which we bring these children, the one that we work in, Jeff, every single day, and it's an incredibly complex environment with complex machines that work together, sometimes well, sometimes less per than perfectly, and then teams that have to come together. Very complex environment, also very susceptible to anxiety and even some fear that goes on among the people who try to take, take part in those environments to help kids. So I want to focus a little on fear, believe it or not, and think about what is it that we fear in healthcare. And when you step back and you think about the, the elements that drive our fear, they're the ones that you'd imagine. Complexity, deterioration of children, poor teamwork, incompetency, not being prepared, being disorganized. Probably a lot of what's feared by all the high-stakes industries. And ultimately, I think what we're fearing is being, is being surprised by the unexpected. And I bring you back now to my first experience in the simulator and what that did for me in terms of making me more prepared when I stepped to the bedside. And ultimately, what I think we all fear is failure from, being from the unexpected or being surprised. So simulation plays a role in this equation, the ability to make us fear more, feel more prepared and therefore less fearful and potentially perform even more optimally in that setting. And it doesn't stop with the clinicians. It moves on to our patients and families, the very core of what we do. You look at kids who are coming into the hospital fearful of what to expect or what they don't know is going to happen, fear of the unknown. Then you look at their parents and their, their families and their caregivers also very fearful of what's going to happen when they bring their child and hand their child over to the healthcare system. So the role of simulation is much wider now. It's about lifelike rehearsals to allow us to be more prepared, to be less surprised by the unexpected, perhaps to never be surprised, and therefore to reduce our failures and to improve our performances. So now go back to that very same child who's born day of life zero with, let's say, a congenital diaphragmatic hernia or some very complex medical problem. And Sim offers, through this game-changing ability, it offers a chance to change the status quo of how we care for that patient. So rather go with, we have a pattern of that patient and therefore we can expect certain elements. Why not actually treat that patient or potentially even operate on that patient in the hours before they present themselves so that we can be ultimately prepared for exactly what they might present to us when they present at the bedside. And we're doing this not just for clinicians, but again, for our patients and families. So bringing in patients into a simulation space or giving them a chance to try something on a simulator or on a mannequin, to take a dry run, to get a sneak peek of the healthcare environment before they ever come in and trying to get a sense of how that affects their fear, anxiety, and even potentially their healing and their lengths of stay within the healthcare system. So if I had to summarize how we bring game changer concepts into reality, we do it through this why. And if I had to sort of put this why into one phrase, it would be that of Marie Curie, actually, which is that she once said that nothing is actually to be feared. It is actually only just to be understood. And simulation has the opportunity to do that on a regular basis.
Peter, that's a terrific quote from um, Madame Curie. But how do you put that into practice? What do we know about this? Have you studied it? Have others studied it? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, some of the first studies of understanding stress and anxiety, for example, um, and how stress and anxiety affects performance, believe it or not, come back from uh, the early 1900s. So in 1903 or so, uh, the famous Yerkes and Dodson studied um, stress and anxiety um, and performance. And they created this sort of classic uh, Yerkes-Dodson curve, uh, which showed that on one end of the spectrum, when you're not stimulated at all, perhaps asleep, uh, your performance, of course, is nil. But as you move across, um, it's not linear, which is what I think many believed. And I remember certainly at times in my surgical training, that was sort of the belief. <laughs> but that it, at some point it peaks um, and then starts to tail off. So that you can be overstressed, you can be overanxious. This gets a little at what we were talking about, right? You can be start becoming fearful, and now performance goes down. And so that was some of the earliest work that we started to look at and start to um, use as our impetus for how we might look at that in healthcare uh, using simulation. And so one of our first studies um, that we did, um, and now there's lots of work being done nationally and internationally around this idea of understanding stress and anxiety and performance, is we worked with a dear colleague of mine, Dr. Mark Volk, um, and uh, another colleague of mine, Dr. Chun Bong, uh, from anesthesia and otolaryngology. And we did an interesting study. We actually um, monitored healthcare providers, in this case, otolaryngologists and anesthesiologists. We monitored their biometrics. We actually did what I think Yerkes and Dodson would have loved to have done hundreds of years ago, because now we have the technology to do it. And we put them in these physiologic suits, and we measured their overall markers of stress that were identified through behavioral psychology, these, these um, associative markers like heart rate, um, or even more specifically, heart rate variability. Turns out that heart rate variability, when you're very focused and you're very in concentrated mode, heart rate variability goes down. That's not to say your heart rate goes down. Heart rate might go up. We're talking about the variability in the heart rate will go down. And when you're chaotic, so, so to speak, sympathetic, as opposed to parasympathetic, when, you make the, if, when, you're, when you're sympathetic, it's much more chaotic. So we did this study. We actually wired up a bunch of healthcare providers and put them into a simulator, and we studied them to see what would happen during their moments of concentration, meaning they were really coalesced as a team. And then we also looked at them even during de uh, debriefings to see how, what the effect was on their biometrics. And here's an example of just a study that we did and you can see here during the delivery of care, as the crisis starts to happen, we observed heart rate variability among these experts go down. And in fact, when we did this, repeated this, gave them a dry run, and repeated this opportunity for them to deliver care in the same way, but now gave them the Seve Bolesteros practice swing, we see even more of a dip in that heart rate variability. I think actually even more fascinating data came out of the debriefing. Because when we looked in the debriefing, we saw trends in a very similar direction. When they were together in the conversation, and they were having sort of a therapeutic good conversation about what they could do better next time, all of a sudden, heart rate variability among the team started to go down because they were concentrating and they were focused. They didn't feel threatened by what they were describing and what they were talking about. They felt an opportunity, this inflection point. They felt this opportunity to grow as professionals. So this was some early interesting data linking actual biometrics, physiolo physiology, to fear, stress, and anxiety, starting from pioneering work in the early 1900s. 
lots is going on now since that time, and, and it's been an exciting place. I remember when I decided to leave molecular biology, I must admit some of it, I think, was that I thought maybe I'd end up in a sleepier profession. <laughs> but it's been anything but that. Uh, simulation has grown exponentially over the last five to ten years. I remember being a part of the simulation society, large simulation society in the United States, uh, SSH, and that was when it was about 200 people. Those meetings are now 5,000 people. Um, market analyses, market predictions of where this market will go are in the multi-billions of dollars in simulation. So simulation really has established itself now as a very sophisticated clinical tool. It's become a very sophisticated science. And as a result, there's been a real sophisticated community that is built around it. So these studies now are being bolstered and are being delivered into the literature on a regular basis. So much so that there are societies like the one that we developed many years ago uh, among a group of colleagues called the Pediatric Simulation Society, IPSS. But as well, there's now been um, research consortiums like Inspire that are specifically devoted to pediatric simulation science. And they publish widely and are very successful in grant, uh, uh, pursuing grant opportunities and so on. We even have pediatric simulation societies in areas all over the world, like India. Pediastars is one that we work with very closely. It's a group dedicated to pediatric simulation that comes out of India. Large multinational, international groups like the Society for Simulation in Healthcare, Enaxel, which is a society specifically for nursing, uh, which is a very large, uh, very de uh, developed society. Society for Simulation in Europe. And then there are simulation societies that are growing in, in countries all over the world, and even ones that are dedicated specifically to technology advancements in sim. So the science is moving very rapidly. The field and the community is growing very rapidly. And so that linkage now between stress, anxiety, preparedness, and improved outcomes is becoming easier and easier to describe because of this widening literature base. Peter, it's, um, you've just given a wonderful overview of really the theory and the, the basis and foundation of the learning science and the promise of simulation. But I wonder if we could turn now to the nuts and bolts of simulation. How, you know, what are the essential elements of a, of a simulator program? Um, and how would you describe that? and maybe describe your experience and, and what others have had. What I'd love to do is um, I'd love to frame this as a SIM 1.0 to 2.0 transition. And what I mean by that is I think for a lot of the world, um, there's been a lot of discovery going on around simulation, meaning, and I call that SIM 1.0, which is what most of us are doing and have been doing for many years, and many are starting to build locally in their environments, which is really skills training, um, using mannequins to teach resuscitation training or what have you training medical students and nursing students in basic skills. Um, and I consider that to be really strong, solid work, and I consider that SIM 1.0, which is how we, we began. What I'd love to do in, is now transition us, and when we talk about the practicalities of this, I want to jump to SIM 2.0, because I think really that's what is, is, is needed, which is not to build simulation programs in isolation, um, or to have them exist separately from either healthcare organizations or healthcare enterprises, but to think about how to build simulation as an inherent practice swing opportunity. Just what you saw with Sebe Bolesteros. How do you make simulation dock into the healthcare organization in which you work? And to do that, um, I want to see simulation, and I think we need to see simulation as a disruptive technology. 
And without getting into too much of the details of that, I think disruptive technology can be defined quite simply. This is the work of Clayton Christensen and others. But it can be defined quite simply as the idea of adapting an existing service or product um, to reach a new audience or an expanded market. And what I mean by that is taking simulation 1.0 as a skills training device and really stepping back and thinking about lifelike rehearsal in and of itself and how can that be applied widely across the enterprise. So disrupting the technology, thinking about it differently, having your heads up to the institution to say, what are the needs of this institution and where could a practice swing be helpful? And that's a SIM 2.0 approach and why disruptive technology is such an important component of how we think about building a program like that. As you well know, Jeff, this program was built about 17 years ago and it was built with a disruptive concept, which was taking simulation and bringing it to the healthcare provider. And that hasn't changed. This accessibility issue, I think, is critical. And the original paper that we published in 2005 really describes that you can create the same throughput as much larger centers just by bringing it on site, the sort of location, location, location concept. And then one step further was taking it and making it even more accessible, so not having it confined to a specific space or room, but putting it on a cart, which actually is a rel relatively low-cost alternative. And we put it on a cart and we bring it into the different environments of the hospital and let the environments become your sim center. And that hasn't changed in the last 17 years for us, the idea of bringing it to the clinician in that way. So when you step back now and you say, okay, here's mechanisms and methodologies to get the simulation towards the healthcare provider, what are the, as you were asking, what are the fundamental underpinnings of a successful program? What are the nuts and bolts? I call this the, um, the quick start guide. You know, what are the, what's the FAQ? to getting a simulation program started. Well, this is our lessons learned over the last 17 years, really in five points. Number one is we built an underlying foundation of psychological safety. And we brought that over from our heritage from the Center for Medical Simulation in Cambridge, where I was trained and so many of us were trained. This raising the importance of psychological safety as a container in which for this work to happen. And we didn't lose track of that. So we trained faculty in how to do simulation safely, how to create psychologically safe environments, because that becomes the fertile ground for what we described earlier, this ability to face one's mistakes and to take this journey through conscious incompetence um, is so fundamental to that piece. So, so building um, psychological safe foundation is critical. Number two was a collaborative center. Not to have it contained within one space, but to actually have it reflect the institution and have de design through implementation of simulation courses and activities happen as a collaborative endeavor. Absolutely critical to the success of a program. Number three is relevancy. And I'm going to get into this in some detail, but this idea of urgency, embedded urgency, putting out the burning platforms of the institution um, is going to be critical to the success of the program, particularly among senior providers who are looking for the value proposition in what you're asking them to do. So that relevancy factor is critical. We talked about accessibility, and I'm going to talk about that even more because it's so important, but it's really the pivot is allowing people to get at simulation type methodologies easily and make it part of their everyday work activities. Last two are really being a professional organization. So we've built what I call sort of an intrapreneurial activity within a professional organization. So we're constantly thinking about the SIM program as a 
bit of a startup and how do we make it successful and how do we continue to grow it within a larger organization. Um, that's an interesting um, type of challenge, but also I think um, uh, very important in how you think about building your simulation program. And lastly, it's interesting in the way we even hired people is I think a lot of it's about customer service. I always say our worst customer is our best customer because our worst customer actually makes us consciously incompetent, teaches us, us what we could do better to make our program more effective for these very busy individuals. Uh, Peter, tell us more about how you translate the concept of uh, a disruptive technology um, or event into, um, into the simulator program. Tell, tell us more about what you mean by that. It ultimately comes down to being very cognizant of what's happening at the institutional level. And that's why I think ultimately another big um, part of success is going to be um, having good connection to um, decision makers within the hospital. For us, as we talked about, we went from a training program very early on, skills training, resuscitation training, and over time, in response to the institutional needs, we became a team training device. That became then a latent safety threat identifier because we were doing simulation within the actual clinical environments. We were able to pick up on latent safety threats within those environments. It became a surgical preparedness tool. So now the surgeons were coming on board and they wanted to use it in order to understand clinic surgical skills. It became a procedural design tool and even a architectural design tool as we were building new facilities across the way. We were using simulation to recreate based on the, the architectural plans. We were able to recreate some of those environments and use simulation to understand form and function of those environments. How well would they perform before we ever build them? Became a fear and anxiety reducer uh, for patients and families in response to that need. And most recently, it's become a root cause analysis and rapid cycle improvement tool by recreating in these environments cases from across the way that we either want to make sure always happen that way or we want to make sure that we can improve on. And therefore, the, the very mission of the program has evolved. So the SIM 1.0 mission was really about training. It was about being a resource to provide skills and some team training to the hospital to optimize those type of performances. As you can see, as we've reinvented simulation and diversified it for the institution, the mission had to change. And so our mission now is much wider. The mission 2.0 statement is to apply state-of-the-art experiential techniques ultimately to optimize human-human and human-technology relationships. And we're doing that, as we've talked about, to reduce fear, reduce anxiety, and improve outcomes and quality experiences in healthcare. So that's interesting, and I don't think I've ever heard you articulate it that way. I, I think I was assuming that the program grew because you determined to go in a certain direction. But what you're saying is, no, the roadmap was really created by understanding what the user needed, and you tried to stay connected to the user, in this case, the hospital, by understanding where's the hot points, where are their needs, and how can we use simulation to help them solve that problem. That's what took you from point to point to point. Is that a fair summary? That's exactly right. Well, could we go up and uh, take a look at this program? Sure, I'd be happy to. Terrific. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.